Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, Foundations of Finance. This is the end of the first week, and there's a lot of just ground, uh, groundbreaking work that's done here, and getting you used to the flow of the content, and getting you as much used to the flow of my lectures and all that. Now, a couple of uh, things right off the bat. As I told you, all of my lectures are podcast on my own private website and on Apple iTunes. And your first lecture is now up here for you to listen to at your leisure. You'll see that there's a, the lecture for the first section and then your lecture in the second section. <coughs> Excuse me. And all you have to do is click on the link and you will hear the lecture. And again, these are done for the standards of Apple iTunes. So they do start out with the music and all that. Anyway, that will give you something to listen to. Now also, if you don't want to be on my creepy ass website, go over here to Apple, I, Apple and they've, the spiders picked it up right away, as you can see. Now the album always features the last 10 lectures, so these would be from last spring, and then these are the lectures from this, and you can just listen to them here. And of course, it's a free subscription to the uh, Illinois State Collegiate Compendium. And uh, you can, if you miss a class or uh, want to review content, it's all here in Apple, and it will be there until the end of time, I think. So those are your resources for being able to catch up if you're behind, if you miss a class or something like that. I do notice that there are a few illnesses kind of swirling around right now on campus. But anyway, so you might miss a lecture. Okay, now. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that is, oh, um, there is a link to the Excel crash course. So it looks like there's something wrong with the link and I'll fix that tonight so that you can go in there and uh, register for that crash course as when you want. They set up a new page for me for this semester, and it looks like the link that they gave me is whacked for some reason. So I'll figure it out, and I'll get that fixed up by this evening. Okay, going on with the uh, with the day's content. As I said, almost every class I will get begin with a look at the numbers, and that means that you will slowly at first possibly over but over time you will de develop the ability to read the information that is there and make your own judgments based upon your 
education about what's going on and what is appropriate investments and all of that. So to, without further ado, here are the numbers. Now the markets have closed. They closed at 3.30 our time. And this is the end of the day activity. Now also keep in mind that there is an aftermarket where buy and sell orders are being put in and a pre-market where the same is happening. And uh, that will be somewhat important in a few minutes to mention that. But right now, you can see the numbers for the day. Now remember that if it is, has a number after the designation, that is just a theoretical portfolio. No number after the designation would be an actual exchange. So we have the Dow 30, a portfolio of 30 giant companies of the earth. You have a portfolio of 500 very large corporations. And then you have this actual exchange of an enormous number of smaller cap companies that are being represented here. So starting out, the simple question, is this a Good day or a bad day? Good. Greens. So what would we say? This this is a what? Bull. 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 Oh, that was good. I, I, you said it good, but you said the wrong one, man. And, you know, I was like, ah, oh, damn. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it is a. You have. To, oh, who says? Say bull. Bull. There you go. That is what we have, is a bull day. And it was a good, strong bull day. Now remember, we don't care about the numbers, the raw numbers. All we care about are the percentages. If I see less than maybe 0.25% up or down, that's really not much, there's not much going on. It has to be enough to catch my attention. And as you can see, the Dow, 30 was up. These tiny screens are going to be the death of me. God, this irritates me. What do they have? Dwarves uh, doing the decisions on changing monitors? Okay, the Dow is, was up about a half a percent. Okay, now notice that the S&P 500 was up more at about 1.10%. Uh, that's not, that's not surprising that the 500 stocks are a riskier portfolio than those ginormous stocks of the earth. So we would expect them to be more reactive to the conditions and markets, what is being said for the day. And then the NASDAQ was up a really healthy 1.6% for the day. And of course, that again is consistent, higher volatility of riskier, smaller cap companies. And you'll see that pattern on many days. The Dow has moved the least, the S&P 500 moves more, and the NASDAQ moves the most, because just simply because of their sensitivity to the environment around them. And uh, in, in this case, well, let's look really quickly though. It's clearly an up day, a bull day. What kind of volume did we have today versus the 52, the average day over the last 52 weeks? Okay, over the last 52 weeks, the average day, there was about 3.5 billion shares traded. Today, it was fewer than 2 billion. So in other words, the trading was relatively thin today. 
Now, just giving you a little bit of context, over the, even in, during the last few uh, semesters, you've seen the trading thinner than it was over the last year. That generally tends to mean that the heavy money is staying on the sidelines. It's staying in cash. The big dogs are not going to throw money at this market until they're sure that it's going to be a good economy going forward. There are still rumblings. There were rumblings about, oh, we're going into a recession and all that. Uh, I, you don't buy that, but still there's some skittish, skittishness about throwing too much at this market until we see more confirmation that we really have entered a, an expansion. So that's why you'll probably see the volume uh, a little thinner than it, oh, its historical average, just because of that going on right now. But going over here, now, as you can see, crude has slid. Now, do you remember I talked about a trading range that seemed to be playing out over the last maybe six months? Do you remember what that range of prices was? for the light sweet Brent, what was it? It was between about 72 and 82 dollars per barrel on the light sweet Brent. Uh, uh, and as you can see, it is just bouncing around in that range. It was up above 80, chickened out, got more closer to the center of the band again. And that, uh, I don't foresee anything changing that condition unless we have some catastrophic uh, problems of arising most likely if there's going to be some kind of an oil disruption it would start in um, Eastern Europe if that if the war over there escalates which it could and there's some concern about that among traders in all areas right now uh, but oil is not really it looks like the oil markets aren't really worried about right now notwithstanding some saber rattling from, from Belarus uh, toward Poland, we all pretty much are sure that they're not st uh, stupid enough to attack a NATO country. So it's not worried right now. But if things heat up more, that would tend to indicate that there's an expectation of constriction of supply of oil, and that would drive oil prices up. And I'll say this again later, and you'll hear me preach this gospel over and over in this course. History means nothing to financial and commodity markets. It means nothing. All that we react on is what is expected to happen next. Information that has already happened has already been impounded in the price. It's only the expectations, new information that shapes those new expectations that changes any market, any stock or bond whatsoever. So always keep that in mind. In our world, we are not accountants. Accountants use historical information because they need receipts. We can't do that. We have to see what's going to happen because that's the only way we can survive in the world called tomorrow. Moving forward, well, it looks like the gold bugs had a little bit of fun today. Now, a few months ago, gold had broken a rather important neckline at $2,000 per ounce, but it bailed back down when the, when the gold freaks realized that there wasn't going to be an, an imminent apocalypse. But it did have a little bit of a pop-up today. Silver did too. 
So the commodity markets are healthy. Now, in one way, prices going up is great because we make more money. But also, prices going up mean things are more expensive. So it's kind of a, two, a double-edged sword. Now, wait, now, here's an interesting thing. These are bond yields. Okay, the yield is inversely related mathematically to the price. So when I see the bond yields go down, that means bond prices went up. And if they go up, that's most likely the result of buying by investors. Usually when investors are buying bonds, that means that they're selling stocks. They're getting out of the riskier stocks. But in this case, equities, that's our fancy word for stocks, are going up. And bonds are going up too. So that is actually kind of a healthy sign. Investors are throwing money into the game in all kinds of different ways. They're throwing money into equities. The, the stock markets are going up. The, uh, they're throwing money into bonds. Hell, they're even throwing money into commodities, for heaven's sake. So that is good news. And it's good news for you because you want the economy to be healthy and to be strong and to, for investors to be putting skin and blood into the game because that means that you can get your internships, your career jobs, without having to kill your opponents to get it or something like that. Now, one little point here. You see these numbers. This is the yields change. Now, in bonds, we often, and in interest rates in general, a yield is an interest rate. We use the term basis points. A basis point is one one-hundredth of a percent. So I could say, uh, ten, uh, in fancy terminology, terminology, the 10-year benchmark slid 13 basis points. That's a fancy way of saying the 10-year bond went down by a tenth of a percent. That's, it's just the fancy language. And I will tell you, and you'll, you'll, you probably kind of already know this, the more you talk like the professionals of the field, the more you're considered one of them. And so as you go forward in all of your classes, listen to the lingo and begin to adapt and start to shape your language like the, like the pros do. So in this case, I would say that the 10-year benchmark has uh, is slid or shed 13 basis points. Is that what it did? Yeah, 13 basis points. Uh, now, going over here, uh, looks like the euro took a toilet break, depreciated during the day, and then it recovered. It's not as bad as it was. The euro had appreciated to close to a dollar twelve, I think it was at one point, and the pound sterling, the oh, pound sterling, the Great Britain pound, went down. Uh, at the end of the day, a little bit depreciated from where it was yesterday, but nothing spectacular on either of those. Now coming over here. The Nikkei 225, that is an index, 225 big important companies on the Tokyo Exchange. And you notice that it kind of bobbled around, but then there was, you see right here, see this bear surge, this bear, you got me doing it now, bull surge. See, see that bull surge there near the end of the day in Tokyo? 
Well, it's interesting in that one because the bulls took control as the clock was stopping there. And as the sun rolled across Europe and came up in London, you notice that that same bullish sentiment was there as well. See that initial bull surge there? And then we come, the sun rolls over the sky in London, sinks, and comes across the Atlantic to the east coast of the United States, and the bull surge was still going. So that tells us that this was more of a global bullish sentiment going on today. Might not last, but sometimes you'll see one country's exchange going up and the others going down or something like this. But this is more of a global bullish sentiment that seems to be taking over right now around the world. And so again, that's good news because you will be or are and I am an internationalist. And so that means that whither goes the world, so goes our economy in the long run. So this is all good news for us. Okay, now I'm going to do something. I start out by, this is the day that I start, we look at an actual stock screen. And we'll do this for a number of companies. Every day we'll look at a couple of companies. And at first, these screens, if you aren't used to them, they just look like a mass of numbers. And then the way you do it, and I'll walk, you with, walk with you over and over again on this, is you just look for the key numbers and you look at them one by one. You don't try to look at the whole thing at once, for heaven's sakes, I can't even do that. Uh, but what I'll do is I'm going to have to start with some kind of a stock. So, well, let's, let's Netflix and chill. Oh, whoa, look at that. Okay. I mean, that is a bull on meth. I mean, 3.5% up for the day. In the aftermarket, it's still honking upward. That's, uh, I don't know what, Netflix must have given some kind of a signal today that things were doing good <coughs> for the company. Now, you've got to understand, this is Yahoo Finance. And Yahoo's going to have some numbers that are delayed 10 minutes, some that are delayed 30 minutes, some are delayed days. It just drives you crazy. I want, I'd, I'd like to just pull up my own trading platform so you can see, but then you'd see my account number. And if you think I'm going to trust you with my account number, you are wrong. So I have to use these uh, these. Uh, uh, plebeian services, as it were, where things can look a little bit weird sometimes on it. But overall, what this is saying, that at the close of trading today, uh, official trading, when the bell rang, ding, 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 at 3.30 p.m. our time, Netflix stood at $427.55 a share. That's what it would cost to get that share. It's, yeah, Okay, I thought someone had a question, but good grief. Okay, so this is actually a very strong bull day for Netflix. Now, going down a little bit, see this? It began today at 8.30 at 4.13.17 a share. But yesterday, at the close yesterday, it ended the day at 4.18.40 last night. But it opened higher than it, 
No. Oh, okay. Wait. It opened at... No, it actually opened a little lower. It dropped a little bit on the opening. Well, that's... Well, why would it be different at the opening than it was at the close? Well, that's simply the result of the aftermarket and the pre-market, where order, buy and sell orders are coming in, and they accumulate. So after the official posting on the open, on the open order book uh, closed at 427.55, there were buy orders and sell orders afterwards and this morning before the bell opened. So the imbalance looks like it was more sell than buy. So that's why the stock opened at a price lower than it closed last night, because those orders were filled at the opening. There were more sell orders and buy orders, which pushed the price down a little bit at the opening. But obviously, the thing just exploded out of the gate after that. And so that's what that's about. Now here, the bid and the ask. If I want to buy a share of Netflix, I would pay $428.80 for it. If I want to sell a share of Netflix, that's the bid at $427.55. Now, that, is, that difference there between those two numbers, uh, what is that, a dollar? $25 a quarter, that's called the bid-ask spread. You buy at a higher price than you sell. So notice that if you actually decide, I want to buy a share of Netflix, and then immediately said, oh, I don't want, I, I didn't mean to do that, my bad, you would actually lose a little bit of money on that. Because uh, there is that spread. Now, why is that spread there? Well, that's how we in the brokerage business make our scratch. We buy at a lower price, and then we sell it, back, sell it out again at a higher price. That's how we make our coin in this business. Now, the more active the trading on a stock is for a day, the tighter that bid-ask spread will be, because I don't have to make as much money on each transaction, because there are so many more. The thinner the trading on a stock in a given day, the wider that bid-ask spread gets. Now, in this case, you have to consider what this price of this stock is. A dollar twenty-five on a on a stock for twenty dollars would give me a heart attack, but on a stock that's four hundred and thirty bucks, you know that's a dollar twenty-five is a pretty pretty tight bid-ask spread. <coughs> but always remember that when you put in an order. And for those of you who don't know how to do it, I am going to spend time in a couple of weeks showing you how to put in orders for stock and do it in such a way that you don't make a stupid mistake. Like putting in a market order is a big mistake. I'll show, I, show you how to do limit orders and I'll show you how to do sell orders and how you do stop limits so that you can get out of a stock if it's risen and it starts to fall. Or if it's you can also do it the other way. If you are making money off stocks falling, I can show you how to make money on a dropping stock before it turns the other too too much the other way. But anyway, now the day's range here was four hundred seventeen dollars to four eighty of two hundred seventeen dollars eighty eight cents up to four hundred thirty seven dollars and two cents. This is the one day chart. So in other words, that four. 1788 would probably be that little drop right there. That was as low as it got today. 
Now the 43702 would be that peak right, one of those peaks right there. This is not very finely tuned, this graph, obviously, because it's so small. But that was its range over the day. Now, look at the 52-week. That's how far it has gone over the last year. The low over the last year was 211.75, and the high was 285. Not. Okay, so the low would probably be, over the last year, would probably be somewhere in that trough right there. And the high would be up there. Now, is Netflix closer to its one-year low or its one-year high right now? Uh, high. Good. That's exactly right. So now, this takes, and I, and I don't do this too often, but there's an old rule that a stock, it's, Netflix has made it up to as far as $437.02. We kind of keep an eye on whether or not it is trying to test that one-year high. You see how it is actually trying to right now? It's not there, but we call that a neckline, that, uh, or, a, a, well, a neckline at 485. Now, there's an old rule that if a stock tests the neckline three times and fails to break through, that's a sell. So, in other words, we would want to keep an eye on Netflix over the next two to four weeks. It's obviously trying to get there. It's testing it. If it backs down and then makes another run, that would be the second test. If it backs down and makes a run again, if it doesn't punch through, that's a sell. If it does punch through, that's a buy. In other words, it's broken through a psychological barrier, as it were. Now, is this rule always right? No. Is it right enough that I will tell a class of, of, of prospective investors? Yeah, you just kind of keep an eye on this one because Netflix is testing. It looks like it's going to test that high in the next couple of weeks. So let's see if it breaks through. If it doesn't, it'll back down, and then we can see if it's going to break through, test it again, and see if it'll break through. Okay, now, volume. Look at this. The volume on Netflix is act today was higher than it has been on an average day over the last year. So that's more confirmation that there's some kind of information that is driving the bulls to happiness. They're throwing money at Netflix right now. You see that, that the volume today was almost 8 billion shares and over the last year, it has been an average of seven billion, seven million, I'm sorry, millions. <coughs> so that kind of gives us an idea that there is something going on with this stock right now. However, don't freak out when you see a stock go up and then it slides back a little bit. We usually say that if it's coming down a little bit, that's, bar, that, that's profit takers. What happens is a stock goes up and some people say, that's enough for me, I'm gonna sell out and get out of it. And so you might see the stock price dip a little bit as some of the players who bought earlier say, well, that's enough for me, I've, I've made some profits, so now I'm gonna get out of it. So that looks like that might, 
I'm almost thinking that in the overnight or in the pre, it's probably going to slide some. Uh, because just profit takers selling, I got, I made some money, I'll sell out and get out. So don't don't worry too much if this actually shows some softness as of tomorrow morning. Now beta. Well, no, let's look at market cap. Now I'm going to tell you a formula, but I'm not going to have you. I don't write it down, and I'm not going to write it on the board. The way I teach is I say things several times before I formally introduce it. I'd rather you, you understand it uh, before you learn some stupid-ass formula. Here's the thing, market cap. The formula is you take the price per share, the market price per share, times the number of shares outstanding. In other words, the common stock is the equity of the corporation. You times that by the price per share of that equity stake, that should be the total shareholder value of Netflix. The total, that is the measure, the market's assessment at this moment of what the total ownership value of Netflix is. Now I'm going to show you something over here. And again, don't write this down. I'm going to do this again and again until you're so sick of it, you want to slash my tires. This is the SEC, oh stop it. This is the SEC. Companies must file their accounting information on a regular basis here. If they don't, they will get fined and maybe even thrown in jail. This was what I did as a consultant. I made these financial statements from the accounting information for small corporations that had gotten in trouble by not doing it. And so I'm going to go over here to file, company filing search. And you don't need to write this down. We're going to do it again, over and over again. But I'm going to look at Netflix, NFLX, what its SEC filings say. And I'll go to the 10K, which is the annual report of the company. 10K, it's right here. Okay, now, every company has to give all of its financial information to the SEC. So I'm going to go to the interactive, and I'm going to go to the financial statements, and I'm going to look at what it says. Now remember, this is the, this is the accounting information for the company, the balance sheet. The reason I'm using the balance sheet is that it reports the stock, total, stock, total stockholders' equity. The accountants say that the total value of equity is $20.8 billion. Do you see it there? Well, wait a minute. The market says that the total value of the equity is $189 billion. Do you notice a discrepancy? A little discrepancy? The market says that this company, the ownership value is $189 billion. The accountants say that it's 20 0.8 billion dollars. You do notice that there's, those aren't the same number. They're saying the same thing, but they aren't the same number. The accountants use historical information. What has come in from all of the receipts for revenues, for costs, for retained earnings from those revenues and costs over the life of the company. The market says, bullshit. What is it worth as we look forward? 
So in this case, the market is saying this company is worth what? About nine times what the accountants say it's worth. That's why we in finance cannot use accounting data as it is presented because it is going to use history, what has already happened. But what's already happened is already in the market price and is the market price is reflecting what the expectation of what is going to happen is. Think about it this way. In a real world example, you, madam, decide that you are going to take a safari on the Serengeti in Africa. Now, you've got your trusty field guide that was written by some academic on the internet. And you look at your field guide, you look up and you see a lion. You look, lions. They are nice, friendly creatures. They are kitties that love to cuddle and be your friend. And you look at this lion coming at you, I'm going to eat your lion. Uh, and then you look, wait. The accountants say, it's nice, it's a kitty. The market is saying, you are about to become lunch. Now, which are you going to believe? The accountants? The, the field guide or what you're seeing that is about to turn you into a side dish at the 12 o'clock meal. What I'm currently seeing. Yes. That's the difference. Is you see, we can't care what has already happened. What is being said on numbers that are formulated from the past, from receipts. We have to know what's going to happen next. You understand, that is why we have to have our own numbers. We take accounting numbers and we twist them and torture them and beat them. And then we go out and find out what the market is saying, you know, about expectations for new products, new uh, geographical territories. We have to look forward in time. That is a very different uh, thing than what is happening in the uh, accounting world. Theirs is a very difficult job. It's tedious. It's boring. I make a lot of jokes about accountants, and I don't feel bad about that until they tell me that they heard I made another joke about them, and then I, you know, I pretend that I'm sad. But, uh, yeah, you know, you know the old joke, why do the accountants walk in groups of three? Well, one reads, one writes, and the other keeps an eye on the two intellectuals. Okay, but anyway, uh, okay, now there's even more complexity to it than that. And this is, this is my world, where I was and where I always will be, uh, even uh, if, if only through my students. This is a world that is like an animal. It's like a crazed, greed-driven, starving beast. It moves with each minute, with each second, from one place to another. And this is a random walk with a trend upward, it is. But it is as unpredictable as you can imagine. It is only over long periods of time that we can have a good window on what the long-term value of a corporation is. You see, what you're seeing there is what we call a market price. But underneath that, there is another price. It's called the intrinsic price. It's that long-term price. From day to day, 
hour to hour, minute to minute, the, pro the, the market price is just going to bounce all over the place. It's just going to bam, bam, bam. It is what we call Brownian motion, random motion, a random walk. It is only over a long period of time what we in finance actually specialize in that we will know what the true underlying value is. Look at it this way. Um, I'm trying to think. You, sir, it turns out that you're my son. May God help both of us. Now, there are some days when you come home and you've gotten the Good Student Award, and I am so proud of you, I have to keep my pants from getting damp. And then there are days... There are other days when I get a call, ring, ring, Dad, I need bail. Why? Well, have you ever heard of something called Molly? Uh, yeah, I knew her. She was in kindergarten. No, no, not that Molly. This is the one that makes new friends for you. Uh, okay, there are some days when you are going to be great, and other days you're going to suck. And what I'm looking at as a parent is what are you going to be over the long haul? And that's the way we do it in professional work. We don't panic on a day-to-day -day base on, for the day-to-day -day ups and downs of a company and its glitches and its successes and its farts and its praiseworthy activities. We have to look over a long period of time. That's intrinsic value. Now, that does have formulas. Mathematical necessities. They come from the world of uh, physics. A lot of it does. It's the natural laws of the universe coming to bear on a situ on, on a, on a uh, some kind of a process. So, and that's one of those things that we have to appreciate, is that there is an underlying intrinsic value. And we need to find that. We want to find that. Now, a stock can be higher at any given time. The market price can be above its intrinsic price. We say it's overvalued. Or a stock can be below its intrinsic price at a given time. We say it's undervalued. That's where we can make legitimate decisions on investments. Is are we in a period where the stock is undervalued? Well, that would be clearly a place where we would want to buy some shares of that stock. Is the stock overvalued? Obviously, we would not want to buy the stock if we have reason to believe that it is overvalued. And I can show you right here a way that it's, it's sort of a rough back of the envelope way to do it. But I can even show you today, today right now, how, it can, how you can tell, at least at first glance. The first thing we're going to do here is we're going to look at this next number. It's called beta. Beta, you're going to hear me talk about that. You're going to actually calculate betas, not by hand for God's sake. That's a lot like work well, on an Excel spreadsheet. It is our measure of the volatility, the risk of a security. A 1.00 is, is sort of like the benchmark. That is the volatility of the world portfolio. If you had all of the stocks and bonds and all the other assets of the world, its volatility, that would be what we designate as a 1.00. 
If a stock or a portfolio has a beta above one, then it's riskier than the market. Below one, it's less risky. So in this case, Netflix is a 1.29. What that means is that in a well-diversified portfolio, Netflix will swing about 129% of the market overall, on average. It will it is a little bit on the risky side. It's, it's on the risky side. Now, if I get a stock that has a beta of 0.8, that would mean that it swings, in a well-diversified portfolio, it swings only about 80% as much as the market would. Okay, that's a good measure. And in fact, that's one of, that is, okay, overall, in the world of science, in whatever you want, in management, in physics, in chemistry, in uh, marketing, they look at another measure of risk. It's called sigma, the standard deviation. Beta is a part of sigma. It's a part of the overall volatility that cannot be removed through investment uh, prudence. If, uh, so in other words, this beta, I can't say that I buy Yahoo and it will swing as much as uh, 129%. It will swing more than the market. But if I put it into a well-diversified portfolio, it's not, it's not, it's diversifiable risk will go away and it will, in that portfolio, behave better, 129% of the market. Now, here's the one that I want to get to right here, though, P-E ratio. The price to earnings. This is how many dollars the market currently expects shareholders to achieve from $1 of earnings. So for every $1 that the company currently earns for the shareholders, the market currently thinks that that will create $44.58 of value to the shareholders. That's what it measures. It's kind of, I have to say this different ways a couple of times, so if you don't get it quite right, don't worry about it. It's, now, what's the right number? Well, you're gonna hear different financial professionals give, finance professionals give you different numbers. The one that I prefer that is kind of popular is 30. If the price earnings ratio is above 30, that tells us that the price is high, overvalued. If the price-earnings ratio is much below 30, that would say the price in price-to-earnings ratio is a little on the low side. The stock is undervalued relative to intrinsic. So when I look at this, I'm seeing that P divided by E, the P is a little higher than it should be to make 30. And so we would say that right now, Netflix is overvalued. And the beta is telling us that it's risky, pretty risky. And so you put those together, and that's one of those things where, unless you're a really risk-taking investor, might not be such a good idea to go hard long on Netflix. By the way, when I say go long, that means buy. So in a case like this, I, I, just for my own 
my own purposes, I'd kind of shy away. Yeah, I had a really good, strong up day, but I don't know how long that's going to last before that P-E ratio comes to bear and brings it down toward its intrinsic value. That's, that's what I'm saying here. And uh, this is, you don't need high-powered, awesome mathematics and uh, ginormous Excel spreadsheets that require uh, gaming computers to do the calculations. There's a lot you can just look at for yourself. Not listen to the talking heads on the TV, not listening to the recommendations of these geniuses on the internet. Look with your own eyes and you can see enough to make pretty decent investment decisions over the long haul. Now here's something. See the EPS? That's earnings per share. In other words, you take the total earnings, net income, and divide it by the number of shares outstanding. This is how much the company made for each share of stock for the shareholders. And that's a darn nice number. That's a decent number. Anything that's not negative is pretty happy. But I mean, nine, uh, north of nine bucks per share, well, that's a healthy company. So this isn't, we're not saying this company is on the verge of bankruptcy, this company sucks. We're just saying, what would a prudent investor do right now with what I had already talked about? Now, another thing here, this company doesn't pay a dividend. Now, the two ways you make money off buying stock, the price goes up and you get a dividend. Now, in this case, you're not getting a dividend, so you're riding that capital gain. That's all you're going to, the only way you're going to make money on this stock is if the stock price goes up. See, if you've got a stock that pays a dividend, well, that's, you know, at least you're going to get a check in the mail even if the stock goes to hell. So in other words, stocks that have a, a dividend tend, tend to be less risky than stocks that are still plowing all their money back into operations. Now let me take you on another, to another stock, just to reinforce some of this stuff. Target, oh excuse me, Target. Ooh, it took a butt bath today, <laughs> a little bit. <coughs> okay, if you want to buy a share of Target, it'll cost you a dollar twenty, rather, uh, two hundred, a hundred, uh, these screens are so small, uh, anyway, uh, $123.29 a share. If you want to sell a share that you've got, you would get $123.12. So the bid-ask spread here is $0.17. Cents. So notice again, if you buy the stock, you are instantly in the hole, the bid-ask spread. So uh, always keep that in mind that yeah, you're not going to get as much as you, uh, if you sell as you are going to pay if you buy at any given moment in time. And if we look down here just a little ways, uh, well, isn't that interesting? Notice that, do you see the target is near its 52-week low? The lowest it's gotten over the last 52 weeks is 122. 46. The highest it's been is 181.80. There's the one-year chart. So notice that it is near its one-year low. So I would consider that there is a bottoming neckline on this. We might want to look to see if it, it's obviously testing its 52-week bottom. 
See if it tests it three times and chickens out and goes back up. That would be a buy signal. If it tries to punch through it on the downside and it doesn't, well, that might be, a, might be a good reason to think about target. Now notice another thing. Target is almost exactly as volatile as the world portfolio. In other words, it's like a mini version of the world in a way. Price earnings ratio, is target undervalued or overvalued? Come on. Beautiful, exactly. This is actually an undervalued stock right now. It's about as risky as if you bought the world portfolio. It's undervalued, and look at this one. It's positive earnings, $7.28, and look at that dividend. It pays out more than half of its total earnings per share. It gives it back to the shareholders. I mean, that's a pretty darn generous company. See, a company can do two things with its earnings. It can give it to, as dividends, or it can plow it back in to the company to grow the stock for the stockholders. In this case, it gives more than half of what it earns back to its shareholders. It says, here, have fun. Do something with it. And so, in a case like this, this has some features that are telling me I might want to watch that neckline on the downside. But if it fails to punch through on the downside, this is a decent stock, especially if you're not so interested in price, capital gains. See, if you're like an older couple or an older investor, you don't really care as much about the stock price going up as you do about getting that nice dividend check in the mail. So this might be something to consider for an older investor, a more cautious investor, uh, one that likes to have a check come in the mail every quarter or every year or whatever. So that one's one that might be interesting to them. Now, let's have a look, just for shots and giggles, at Tesla. Okay. Is it risky? Look at beta. Yeah, technically we say it's risky AF. Uh, it, it, is it overvalued or undervalued? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this one is definitely... I mean, it's not that it's going to go down to its intrinsic value tomorrow. In fact, Tesla has been a basket case for ever, ever since Musk took it over. The reality, though, is that you have to know a little about markets. There are so many brokerage, there are big, powerful brokerage houses and rich investors who have put money into this that they are going to do everything they can to prop up that price because if that price ever found intrinsic value, there would be some awful consequences on some very rich resources of money. So it's, this is not to say that you should wait, watch the stock go down into the toilet. It won't, not for, at least not for a few years. Uh, so keep that in mind that, yeah, it's overvalued. It's terribly risky. It doesn't even pay a damn dividend. It's run by a fool who drives companies into the dirt. And so... Just, if you want to buy it, go ahead. 
but if you want to stay away from things like the th third gate of hell, uh, yeah, this might not be the best idea for you. This is what we do in our business. It is a combination of math, but I'm, I, I'm talking as a mathematician. I don't give a rat's ass if you show me numbers, unless you can show me what action I can take with those numbers. And that's how it's going to be in the business world. You come in with your fangs out, with the, math, with the data, but you end sitting down at the table and explaining what this is telling us. Oh, a mother's work is never done. And we're going to do this every day. I'm going to show you the broad markets, and then I'm going to take a couple of companies, and we're going to look at them. And you will, might get sick of it, but like I said, most student evaluations I get, they say this is the best part of the day. It's just learning how to be our own investors. Look with our own eyes at the market and find out what it's saying. Now, when I talk about stock, this is unusual. This is unique to a certain type of company. Now, the simplest company that you can have Well, let me look here. Who, who would do this? Who would be this? You, sir, have decided that you are going to start your own lawn mowing company. Okay? So you buy yourself a 1969 Ford pickup, mm -hmm, classic, and you buy yourself a lawn mower, and you go to rich people and say, you don't have time to mow your lawn. I shall mow it for you. And they say, why, yes, that would be very nice of you. So you, they pay you. You pay for your gas. You pay for other things. And then if there's whatever is left over, you keep for yourself. It's all yours. Now, you, you have to pay taxes on that. And all those good things. But it is your company. You are the company. There is no difference. When you die, it dies. Well, I'm going to give this company to my, my kid. No, you're not. It's gone. Unlike you, it's with Jesus. No, you, you'll be there too. I won't, so the hell with you. Okay, but listen. You see, it's mortal. It is just you. Now, you can create a fictitious name, and I'm actually going to show you. I, I teach Business 100, and I actually show how to do these things. You can create a fictitious name and register it with the state, and that'll be your name. It's not too expensive. I, I mean, when I, I've done it a couple of times, and, uh, more than a couple of times. I think the last time I did it, it cost me a total of about 60 bucks. So you could call yourself Lawnmower Man or something like that. I don't know. And that's you. So you could go to the bank, and once you show them that this is you, you could take checks written to Lawnmower Man, and you can deposit them. It's all you. There is a downside to this. Now, suppose that you're mowing some rich people's lawn, and you accidentally, you're going, and you accidentally mow their poodle. Okay? You gave that animal a show dog trim. Now they are going to sue you. Not 
they're not going to sue Lawnmower Man. They're going to sue you because you are Lawnmower Man. They're going to take your mower and they are going to take your truck and then they are going to take, go break into your apartment and take your Velvet Elvis paintings and your collection of classic porn videos. Whoa. I know, right? It's harsh. In other words, they have every legal right to shoot your dog, sell your Bible on Craigslist, and make your parents wear furries that they like. There's nothing wrong with furries, okay? It's not what people think. Don't ask me about how you wear the tail. <laughs> Shut up, up there. <laughs> it's awkward. You understand what I'm saying here, though, is that you're the it. You're the company. And when you file your taxes, you're not going to file taxes for Lawnmower Man. You're just going to put that as your own income and pay taxes on it. Okay, well, in other words, you are all at risk. It's called a sole proprietorship. Well, I'm going to get me a partner and, you know, spread the risk. So you form a partnership. Now, with a sole proprietorship, you don't have to do any initial filings with any government agency whatsoever. You really don't. Now, with a partnership, most states, including this, uh, the state we're in, they will require you to file a, uh, a partnership agreement. But you're not spreading the risk because if he makes a mistake, you are joint, both of you are jointly and severally liable. So if he doesn't have any money, they'll just take it all out of you. In other words, it's just the two of you, or the three of you, or however many there are. And if one of you dies, when one of you dies, the partnership is done. It's gone. You say, now wait a minute, I know partnerships that have been around for 150 years. No, they have a, in the articles, in the formation, they make it so that when one of the partners dies, those assets collapse into a new partnership of the same name without that dead partner. That's how it works. So it is still, just like you, mortal. It lives only as long as the life of the short, as the shortest life within the partnership. Just like a sole proprietorship. It is mortal. It lives only as long as you live. But then comes the greatest invention. Now we have some documents that this entity was actually used or done clear back in the 1200s, I believe it was. In feudal Japan, we have documents of these companies that had all the characteristics of a corporation. A corporation is not any person. It is an entity of its own, a legal thing that is recognized by law as having nothing to do with you other than that you are the owners. Uh, now, the one back in we, uh, this one example back in the 1200s, and interestingly, it survived into the 20th century. It had that immunity of the owners that is so characteristic of corporations. And the immunity was granted by the sovereign of Japan 
in his dealing in the dealings of the company. It was an architecture uh, company. So, okay, now here's how it works. Now, I actually, okay, first of all, I have created sole proprietorships. I I almost always create a company as, as that I'm going to use for my business purposes as a sole proprietorship. And I usually get it, give it a fictitious name, register that with the state of wherever I am. And then, if it comes alive, if it starts actually making money, I then move it to corporation. You start by filing with the state of incorporation. Not with the feds. Corporations are state entities. So let me give you an example. I had been running for some years a sole proprietorship that had a fictitious name, a DBA, a doing business as, of Emergent Light Studio. And I did, for in that time, product photography, glam, and uh, portraits, things like that. Okay, well, in 2012, in a Business 100 class here, I said, you're going to help me form a corporation tonight. We went, thank God it's all online now. It used to be papers filed in triplicate, waiting six weeks for a response from the state. But it was all online. We went through the process. You answer all these questions. Okay, what's the name of it? Where is its business address? Who is, who, what's the name and address of who will get any legal documents that we send to you? Uh, how many shares of stock are possible to sell or to give? That's authorized shares. And all those, fill in the box, boom, 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 all through it. And then it asked, and the students watched it, and then it asked one last question. Okay, you've called it Emergent Light Studio. Now, What's the, what's the appending uh, designation? You have a choice, comma, INC period, comma, incorporated, comma, CO period, comma, company, comma, limited, comma, LTD. And I asked the students, you tell me, vote. For which one? I regret that I did that because I don't like the one they gave. They, they said it, INC period. So legally, the company is called Emergent Light Studio, comma, Inc. And you'll see it. And if I have to call it that in legal documents, in all legal documents. In commercial documents, I got a trademark through the US Patent and Trademark Office for Emergent Light Studio, Studio, and I can put a circle R, which you'll see if you go to my website. You'll see that circle R. Okay, now, that was the first round. I, it was blinding, like instead of six weeks, while I was standing there, I submitted, and like 10 minutes later, it came back qualified. Now, government never approves anything. The term in our world, the government qualifies. In other words, it met all of the uh, dotted I's, cross T's, and all that. And, and legal entity was born. That is not me. It is recognized by the state of Illinois as a separate entity under the law with its own laws. It is responsible for its own liabilities. Remember that liabilities plus equity equals assets? 
it, the, the equity is mine, the liability is Emergent Light Studios. And so its bills, it has to pay its bills. As long as I keep my nose clean, don't do things like pierce the corporate veil, I never have to pay a bill of that company. If the company gets sued, I am not liable for that. Now you think in my business, how could I get sued? Well, here's one way. Okay, go to an art show. And I'm there showing my art in, a, in an exhibition booth with all the other gypsies, tramps, and thieves around. People come in. I've had more than one occasion when some idiot kid came flying through, kicked over one of my display stands. Giant pa uh, artwork, painting, photograph, comes to the ground, shatters into a million pieces. Parent threatens to sue me for hurting her little baby and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just like, bitch, he ran into... Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, but no. So I, I, it can be exposed to liability, but I can't. And so in order to cover the company, my fiduciary duty informs me that I have to get a business owner's policy, what we call a BOP. And if you're interested in this, I will teach it to you. But don't come to me with a great idea unless you're willing to carry it to the finish line and it will become your child. It's separate, legally separate under the law it is its own, but you are the steward, the fiduciary agents of the corporation. We'll talk about that later in the course, too. Now, interestingly enough, that same night, that's not the end of the game. Because you then, once you have created this entity, you have to get an FEIN, a Federal Employer Identification Number. And I went online. I didn't expect this to be fast, but there it was. What, what information did you put in this box when on the charter? What information did you put? It just, with this and this, I clicked submit. Within literally 10 seconds, it came back in one of the classroom. I was using a classroom here. It came back with the FEIN. In other words, the social security number of the corporation. It really is a living entity. The difference between a corporation and a human the corporation does not have a mortality. Even though most corporations don't live forever, there is not a limit. That's why in the models that I will show you in the days and weeks to come, we assume that the going concern is in operation. In other words, there will not be an end to this entity. It will live on past you. That stock doesn't die when you do. It will just pass to someone else through estate or whatever. So that's the big difference with a corporation. And that's why in a course like this, we deal in corporations for the most part. I talk about private entities, but the gold standard is to make a company public for a couple of reasons. One is it's easier to raise money because you can sell stock which you can't do in a private company, not easily anyway. And also for the fact that once you are in the world of corporations, you no longer are answering to yourself. You're answering to something that is more than you. As a matter of fact, you're answering to an immortal. You have created a mini-god, or you work for a mini-immortal, and that means that it is far more than you could possibly ever be. But you can be with it for the duration of your life or whatever.
That's all I have for you today. I thank you.